Well, Merry Christmas. Um, Jesus is the reason for the season. You hear all this stuff, right? We're, some of you just had a panic moment. You're like, I haven't bought my gifts yet. Is it that time? No, it's not that time, but that's where we are in Matthew. Um, and, and I think it's kind of cool that we're there in Matthew for, for a number of reasons. But, but first off, if, if you think about it, you always hear when it comes to Christmas time some story of Jesus' birth. You always hear when it comes to Christmas time some, some idea of what's going to happen, but it's always kind of really close to Christmas. And, and the downside of that is you hear someone like me standing up and they say, you know, he's the, Jesus is the reason for the season. But by that time, we've already blown it. Right? Like by Christmas time, we've already been really mad at traffic. We've already focused too much on what gifts we need to get someone. So when it gets to Christmas, it's like, he's the reason for the season. You're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Man, I wish I would remembered that months ago because I've been freaking out about this. The sad thing is, some of you heard Merry Christmas and you already got your Christmas list done and you're way ahead of schedule and you make us all sick. So, anyways, um, that's free. You guys can have that. No, we're here today. We're talking about about Jesus. We just came off of the genealogy, and the genealogy was set in place to remember, to, to point back to who Jesus was as Christ a King and as the Messiah. And so we get to the birth. Now, why I'm excited about talking about this is for a couple reasons. I believe that, that you and I, and I, I had some even this week as I was studying, over the last couple weeks as I was studying, and then in the last year, We've believed little aspects of this story because we've sang about the story. We've heard the story a thousand times. People have gotten up in my position and they tried to make the story a little bit more creative because we've heard it so much. And I think what's happened is over time as we've sang about it and we've talked about the story is that we've allowed ourselves to believe little misconceptions of how this story truly happened or what went there. And, and most of these misconceptions, most of the things, and even some of the things I say today, aren't going to really change who Jesus is or change how we worship him or believe in him. But... But I do think in, in a little way, at least in a way for me, it made Jesus' uh, story of birth a, a lot bigger. And it made me want to worship him more and, and be reminded of who he was even more so. So I think some of those misconceptions, but now here's the downside about some of those mis- misconceptions, is if you pile a little bit of, of falsity or a little bit of misconception of Christ on top of a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, I would bet to say that at some point you're not worshiping the true Christ. At some point, you've either watered him down or you've gotten a little off, and, and maybe the premise is you still understand him as Savior and you still understand him as, as Lord, but, but, but some of the other things start to weigh in. And I think then where that, like where the rubber meets the road for us is, is then in our actions and in in the application of, of what his word says about us because we, we don't necessarily believe everything that Christ is or, or the whole character of him. We, we miss the mark. And so what I wanted to do today is I wanted to tell the story before we get into the craziness of holidays and people are excited about Christmas break from school or, or they're excited about um, lots of, I don't know, eggnog, which is good. I don't care what you say. Um, and, or they're excited, about all these, <laughs> they're excited about all these aspects and we get, we get kind of messed up. But it's fun to hit it today because none of you are really thinking about it. And like I said, if you have already thought about it and you're already there, you're way too ahead of the schedule. Calm down, okay? But... But we get to listen to this. So I'm going to just share the story of, of, of Jesus' birth. I'm going to kind of walk through it. It's, it's pulled from Matthew 1, 18 through 2.23, or we also get a, a, some of the context from Luke 1.26 through 2.39. So you can, you can feel free to turn along with, you, with me if you want in Matthew. But, but this is the beginning of, of Jesus. And now Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity. Okay, so the whole superstructure of Christian theology is built on him. Everything. So the essence of, and the power of the gospel is that God became man 
and that by him being both holy God and holy man, he was the perfect sacrifice to reconcile man to God. See, Jesus' virgin birth, his substitutionary atoning death, resurrection, ascension, and return are all integral parts of his deity. If you take any of those out, you, you, you reject any aspect of that. You reject the whole gospel. So it's important to know where his life began and who he is. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about it. And hopefully um, through this, if nothing else, maybe some of you that have heard this over and over again, you hear it in a new way. And not that I'm saying something new, but just that you, that, that God's spirit would, would move in you and stir in you in something that's like, oh, it, it would draw you to worship him more. And maybe, maybe some of you, this is the first time you're hearing it, which I, I highly doubt, or maybe it's the first time you're hearing it in the context of the Bible. And I would just encourage you to, to be reminded, as just like we did in the genealogy, although all of this is very important information, we can't lose sight of the fact that it's about Christ. It's about Jesus, and, and all of it's about him. So, so the story kind of begins, and we, we see in Matthew, it says, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothal is, is something that we don't have modern-day understanding of because it's not really like engagement. Betrothal would have been usually set up by um, the, 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 the parents and just kind of arranged marriage. And betrothed, if someone was betrothed in this time, it truly meant essentially they were married other than they hadn't done the celebration and they hadn't consummated the marriage. And there would usually be a time period of about a year, maybe a little less, and it was kind of a trial period, a probation period, to check for fidelity and, 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 and to understand if this would work. They wouldn't have a lot of interaction but they would have some. And, and, and in Nazareth, you got to remember, at this time, probably two to 300 people. And so it's a small town, so limited interaction, I mean, wouldn't take long to see it because right now today in Israel, there's a, a church over the entire town of what Nazareth was. So that gives you an idea of how small it was. But, but he, he was betrothed to, to she was betrothed to, G, uh, to Joseph. And, and so then in, uh, we get this context in Luke, in Elizabeth's sixth month, see, Luke gives us a story of John the Baptist who paves the way. And so this angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to conceive a child. You're going you're to conceive a child, and that child is going to be the Savior. A child, you're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to be that. And then he says to her, and I think this is somewhat of, we know it fits the prophecy, but I think this is also something in her to kind of confirm, like, this is, this is legit. This is real. He says, even your cousin who was, who was, who was barren is of child. In fact, in her sixth month already with John, with a child. And, and it says right here, and then it says, well, Mary left, leaves in haste to visit Elizabeth. Now, that would have been about a nine to 10 day trip from where she was in Nazareth, Nazareth to hill, hill Country, about 80 miles. So she just rips out and leaves with haste and then, and then shows, up, um, shows up to spend the time with Elizabeth. Now, we get two aspects of the story in Luke and Matthew. And we, we hear where Joseph is a righteous man, which is, which is cool. We don't hear a lot about Joseph after this other than um, when they're leaving from Jerusalem down to Jericho and they, they forget Jesus and they have to go back. And, and that's basically the last we hear of Joseph. But we know that, that Jesus, is, his, his kingship comes from the line of David, which was Joseph, and so that, that that's there. But we hear in the story that Joseph, being a righteous man, wants to divorce Mary because she's of child. But I think that, and this is my own speculation, you guys can do what you want with it. Um, I think that, that Mary, because she left in haste, she, she heard from Gabriel, got up and bailed and took the journey. I don't think she tells Joseph at that time that she's pregnant. I think she goes and spends time with Elizabeth, and we know that she spends, she sees through the term because she would have helped in the delivery. And so she know, we know she's there for at least three months, and like I said, it's a nine to ten, nine to ten day journey. And then she comes back. To me, 
that makes a little bit more sense because she comes back showing at this point. She's three to four months pregnant. She shows up after being gone a little over three months and, and Joseph's like, wait a second, doing the math in his head. And he's like, wait, I know, like, what's going on here? You're, you're pregnant. And so he's, he's to, to do, because he's a righteous man and to do justice to her, he's, he's trying to divorce her quietly, which is a big deal because if she actually had messed around with someone when she was visiting cousin Elizabeth up there, her, her penalty would, it could have been death by stoning. Like they literally could have killed her for that. And so he's, while he's pondering, while he's thinking what he's, he's going to do on how to divorce her, an angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him the same thing. He says, look, you marry her. And, and when, when she has a child, the child she has is from the Holy Spirit. And the child she has is, is this, and you are, to name him Dave, or you are to name him Jesus. And he says one other thing to him, which I think is so key. He says, son of David. He reminds Joseph, look, you're, in the, you're a descendant of the King David. You're a descendant of the kings. And this is the prophecy has talked about how a king would come out of that line. And so Joseph, I, I think, is, a, is an amazing man of faith. He, he does that. He does just that thing. He wakes up. He marries her. He doesn't, he doesn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus is born. And he just, and he names, her, names him Jesus. And so Joseph does some amazing things. But before they get to the birth... They have to travel to Bethlehem. And this is where you and I know this story. It's like, okay, well, Joseph and Mary have to travel to Bethlehem. And, and when I walked in Israel, I spent some time, you start seeing some of this in, in perspective. Um, that was a, about a 70-mile journey or 70 to 80-mile journey um, and about a 1,000-foot gain. Now, I've never been pregnant, and I probably won't, but um, there's a lot of people here that are right now. But, and, and they're all in good shape, so don't, ostracize me for this, but I think that 80 to 90 miles at eight, nine months pregnant in a fairly hot area with uneven ground would be a really hard hike. So if nothing else, maybe today you just realize how much of a, like a woman Mary was. Like she'd ruin any of the girls in CrossFit today. Like she's just, she's got it, right? But she makes this journey to Bethlehem. It's, it's, it's all this distance and she gets there. And now this is where I think the story is, is radically different than what we know. And I want to just spend a, a couple seconds on this and, and bear with me because this really changed for me when I spent time in Israel. So the story we know is they, they travel to Bethlehem and they show up and they, there's no room at the hotel and they knock on the door and there's no vacancy sign lit up and the guy turns away, sorry, you know, there's nothing. There's a barn over there and they head over to a barn and, and the cow's, you know, pooping and Jesus is born by the cow and the milk and, and that's kind of the story we have. But what's interesting is that I don't think that that's really how it went. And again, this is a cultural thing. For us, to hear there's no vacancy, we see signs like that all the time, and that makes sense in our culture. But in Middle Eastern culture, even today, the idea of, like, no vacancy is, is, is fairly rude. In fact, let me, let me just play with this a little bit. In, in that day, the, the houses were um, in, in Bethlehem. In fact, this right here is the, his, the traditional site of Jesus' birth. That was a normal rock, but it's black because of people touching it and kissing it. It's in a Greek Orthodox church, and there it went. So, disappeared. But um, <laughs> that, that was the historical site in Bethlehem, and it's down in a grotto, a cave. Now, the reason why that's important is that a lot of the homes in Bethlehem in that time would have been built into a cave. They would have utilized the structure of a cave and then placed a room on top of that. And then either they would have put a room on top of that room or a room to the side. And that would have been your, your traditional home. It would have been a cave, a room, either a room next to it or a room above, and they've been very, very small. And you can actually go right just to the side of this. There's a, there's a cave, a grotto, that they're calling this Orthodox church that's over it now um, is calling his birth site. This actually just 
for fun, the church this is right here is, is a fourth century church. It's the oldest church in Israel. And the reason why it's still standing is because when Islamic rule came in and started obliterating all churches, kind of like we're seeing in Egypt right now, um, they, uh, <laughs> they, they didn't destroy this one because on the side, inside the main room, is a huge mosaic of tiles of wise men. And so when the Islamics came in, they said, this is a church, and then they saw the wise men that looked very much like what they believed. And they said, oh, this is a cool place. Leave it. And so it's still standing today, and this is where it is in Bethlehem. And the cave now, so what they would normally do is they'd start at the cave, they'd build a room onto it, and then a room above it or a room to the side. And the room onto it in the main area would be the basic living quarters, kitchen, sleeping, everything right there. The cave would become, now hear this, their stable. The cave would become their stable, or it would be off to the side, would be their stable. The room upstairs or the room to the side would be a guest room. So there would be three rooms. And so what they would do is at night they would bring the animals in, their livestock in, put them in the cave to protect them at night, and then during the day they'd take them out and clean it and live in there. And that was very common. So, so the reason why I think this is key is because of another thing. There's a Bedouin culture, a Bedouin people that are still in Israel today. And, and historians have studied the people of biblical time, the Jews of biblical time, and the people today, and they say that the Bedouin culture most accurately depicts what the Jews of Jesus' time would have lived like. And what they are is they're roamers. They're, they're kind of, they live off the land, freeloaders. The Bedouins, they're still there today. They don't have houses. They can, Israel allows them to put their kids into school, but they don't pay taxes. They don't, they're just kind of freeloaders. They, they have their own animals. They live off the land right there, and that's it, and they just kind of roam. Now, the thing about the Bedouin culture is that today, you and I, today, I, I wouldn't maybe, well, yeah, today, you and I could go there, and this is being told to me while I was in Israel. We could walk up to Bedouin culture, and I could go over there, and I could be like, man, I'm, I could go up to someone and say, I'm hungry. If there wasn't a language barrier, which there may not be, but I'm hungry. I need a place to sleep, and I'm thirsty. And they would, in their, their really, really small kind of made shack with tarps and whatever they have today, would look at their house, and they'd have one bed, a loaf of bread, and a thing of water. And it was for that person. And that person, instead of turning me away and saying, no, you can't do it, would give me their bed, would give me their bread, and would give me their water. They would never turn, they would, culturally, it was unacceptable to turn away a guest. And so this is the Bedouin culture. They wouldn't turn away a guest. Now, after the third day, this, this is, they still do this. By the third day, they would say, what are you doing here? They'd finally ask me, like, are you staying or are you going or what's going on? Like, are you going to be one of us? Because if you're one of us, you need to start earning your keep. But otherwise, you're going. And that's a, that's a very typical Bedouin culture. That's the thing. That's what's existent today. And they say that's very close to the Jewish culture in Jesus' day. A second aspect why that story is key, and I'll pull that in a second, is that we know that, that Joseph and Mary are headed to Bethlehem because of the census. So, 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 that shows that Joseph was a tri of the tribe of Judah, so he needs to go to the area where, where Bethlehem was to do his census. But the reason why that was is because Babylonian rule had obliterated all of the tribes of Jewish um, descent. All of them were gone. There was two southern tribes that were left, and that's it. Well, in that time, to reinstitute the tribes, they, they did a branch. They would branch people out. So they would send, okay, so they would send people. So Joseph and Mary were most likely a branch, or not Tsar was what the word was, into Nazareth as to, to reinstitute the 12 tribes once the Babylonian rule was over. And so he's coming to a hometown in Bethlehem. Okay, so remember, Bedouin culture, Joseph's coming to a town where most likely it's, it's, it's a hometown. Bethlehem at this time was about 600 people. So Joseph and Mary make the trek. Now picture that kind of hospitality coming to a town that most likely they had already made 
like they had already made arrangements to, to where they were going to go, but there was most likely relatives. And Mary shows up after making a monstrous journey, about ready to pop, and knocks on the door, and they're like, oh, sorry, no room, see you later. It doesn't make sense culturally. Over there, they, they, they laugh at our American version of that. They're like, that's just silly. That's just silly. Let's go one step further. And the reason why I think that's, this is key is that this was fun because it ruined my nativity set, and I'm hoping to ruin yours too. Um, <laughs> so, so Joseph and Mary are showing up to most likely relatives. We get the word, there's no room at the inn. Now that word, and we see it used in, in the Gospel of Luke twice, that word is katalima. It's a Greek word, okay? And we see that word also used later in the Gospel when Jesus says, go into town, find us a place. You'll see a guy carrying water to eat the Passover meal together. Find us a room to eat in the Catalima. So he uses that same word. Now, the only other time we hear motel or inn in Luke is in the story of the Good Samaritan. Okay, and in the story of the Good Samaritan, if you don't know it, it basically ends with this guy taking someone to, a, to an inn, to a hotel, and, and paying for their needs. Now, the word there is different. The word there is, is, is pandahayan. Pan, I'm going to totally butcher it, but basically pan means all and dahayan means to receive. In fact, that word is so common that it's a lone Greek word to, our, our, um, to Arabic, to Armenian, and to Turkish, and a bunch of others. Still to this day, that's the word they use for hotel or inn. So why would the same author use three, two different words and mean the same thing? He, he wouldn't. So my argument is that most likely Jesus... And, or most likely Jesus was born in a house, still in a stable. The animals would have been gone. They wouldn't have done it in place. They would have cleaned it up. He did lie in a manger, but it was a, it was a feeding trough, what a manger was, right? And that could have been out of stone or wood. But what they would have had is most likely that manger would have had a couple steps down into it, or the, the, the stable would have had a couple steps down into it, and that's where Joseph and Mary um, had, that's where Mary had Jesus. Now, Joseph wouldn't have even been present. In that culture, all the, the women of the family would have been in place, and the men wouldn't have. So the, the other aspect why I think that's important, well, it's not really important other than to ruin your nativity set, but um, the other reason why I think that, that's the way it is is that the house would have been deemed, they had guests. So basically, this people that show up says there's no room in our guest room or guest room, whether it was this way or this way, take our stable. We'll, we'll, we'll move the animals out. We'll clean it. They would have laid fresh straw down. They would lay the blankets over him, and he would have been born there, separate from men and women. Now, or separate, men wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have been there, and the animals probably wouldn't have been either. They would have moved them out. That also would have made the house unclean. So if they had guests, and Jesus was to be born inside that main living room, both that room and the guest room would have been deemed unclean, and they would have had to kick everyone out. So, so again, that's, that's kind of the way that I see it fitting historical. Now, some of you are like, I don't think that really matters. But, but either way, it was really cool for me. And here's, here's the reason why. is When I first read the story and as I first studied the story, I kind of felt like God missed a point. <laughs> like our sovereign God, control of all things, and he forgets to have a place for Jesus to be born. Like he's like, oh man, there's nowhere for him to be born. And maybe we've used that and said, well, that's because he can be born in the most humble spot and it's showing his humility, in which I, again, he was. He was born in a stable. And it was humbling, but he was received by peasant people. And the first people to visit him were shepherds, peasant shepherds from a field, to see him that day laying in a manger. So that's, a, that's a, what I believe a more accurate picture of that. And you can, there's more stuff about that. Eight days later, we see in, in Luke that eight days later, he's circumcised. And then um, 
And then he's, and then after Jesus' circumcision, he's presented at the altar. We see the, the prophecy of Simeon and Anna. That would have been about 41 days because of the Leviticus, um, the Leviticus law of being clean. And then after that, after that, sometime after, we don't know when, but sometime after, the Magi show up. And, and this is the, 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 the wise men, whatever we call them. And we, we'd say three because of the gifts they gave, but most likely... They were traveling in an onslaught of people. Now, the Magi, there were, there were two versions of Magi. There was some that were still in, in Jerusalem and, and in, in Judah right now, and then there were others that were in Persia. And they're very different. The Persian ones, which are most likely these ones because they're from the east, were Magi. They were incredibly intelligent people. They would have studied astrology, astronomy. They would have, they would have been well-versed, and in, in, in they, would, they would do dream interpretation. Someone would, would, it's where we get our word magic. They would have worked in sorcery and all sorts of other weird stuff, and and, and they really wouldn't have known much of the messianic prophecy. But what we do know is that, that where we see Magi as well is in Daniel, the story of Daniel. And he, he actually was a prophet, and he spent time with the Magi. And most likely because of that, there was Jewish, um, interp- or Jewish history and, and Old Testament was present. And when they were in Babylonian rule, the Magi, a bunch of Jews would have been over there before it, they came back in some state. So the Magi had some understanding of the Jewish Old Testament prophecy and of the Messianic prophecy, but really not a lot. We know they're incredibly intelligent. In fact, they're so intelligent that anyone to be a king in in Persia would have had to have had the qualities of a Magi, and the Magi would have made a king, which is key because they're showing up in most likely not three of them, but a bunch of them, and they're showing up to a king at the time, which was Herod, who was very, very insecure, and was very afraid of uprising. And they show up, and what's, we don't know necessarily, but somehow a star shows up, and they interpret it as Jesus, the, the king of the Jews, has been born. And so they make a trip from, from east over, and they come to Jerusalem. And we know that they don't know where they're going because they're asking, the tense of that verb is they're asking a bunch, like, have you seen this, and have you seen this? And what I think is interesting is that these magi who aren't, they're Gentiles, they're not Jewish at all, and they're, they're, in Jerusalem, the, 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 the main center of Jewish religion around the temple, and they're saying the king of Jews has been born and no one knows about it. Like, this is, no one knows about it. Now, we don't know how they knew or if the star was an actual star, if it was a divine intervention, and lots of people have studied that. I'm not going to go there, but um, we don't really know either way. But they show up looking for him. And they, they, they're, they're asking, okay, so, so where are they? And they finally come to Herod's temple, and he brings the scribes and the Pharisees and the, um, the chief priests. These guys, these guys would have all been very, very well-versed in Messianic prophecy. So well so that they, come, they take him to Micah 5.2, and they say he's going to be born of Judah out of Bethlehem. And then the Magi are like, oh, okay, and they get ready to leave. Well, we know in the story, Matthew tells us that, that before they leave, Herod says, pulls him aside and says, hey, tell me where this guy is because I want to go worship him too, which actually Herod was, was using for own selfish gain because he wanted to kill him because he was so afraid of, of the king of Jews coming up and re- restoring the Jewish kingdom and him being kicked out that he wanted to, to stop and eliminate it. So the star shows up again and leads the Magi directly over the house, the house at which he's staying. And so those, those, those Magi come in and they, they worship him. They offer him frankincense and gold and myrrh, and there's, there's a lot of things to that. We don't have time necessarily to talk about it, but 
they worship him. And, and the, frankincense, the, the, the gold and the frankincense and myrrh wasn't, wasn't their act of worship. It was an addition to worship. It was an act of worship towards that. So it wasn't the only thing they did, but they worshiped him. And then it tells us that they were getting ready to leave, but an angel shows up to them again and says, don't go back the way you should have. Don't tell Herod. And they, they left a different way to Egypt. And so then, um, and then Herod gets really mad finding out that they didn't come. And we know that, that Jesus is at least two years or younger at this point because of the timing at which they saw the star. And, and so Herod orders all of the children in Bethlehem to be slaughtered that are two years and younger, all the male children. And so Jesus was, or Joseph was warned in a dream again, and so him, Mary, and Jesus uh, retreat 90 miles to Egypt and spend time there until Herod passes away, which we know that that Herod passed in 4 BC, but we're not sure exactly when they, they came back. And that's all a prophecy of Jeremiah 31.15 and Hosea 2.15. See, what Matthew's doing in this story is he starts weaving in all the Old Testament prophecies. And there's 330-something prophecies of Jesus and right here we see Jesus fit four, and we know from the rest of the New Testament that Jesus fulfilled all of them. That's like, I don't care how amazing of a writer you are, for one person to fulfill all of that is, is, is ludicrous. In fact, it's divine. It's a miracle. It's something that only God could do. And so then they come back to Nazarene just to fulfill another prophecy of he will be called a Nazarite. And so Jesus spends his life growing up there in Nazarene, in Nazareth. So what should we take from this section? You know, this, this is a whole lot of stuff, and my hope isn't just to have you throw away your nativity set, but, but the idea that, that there are aspects of Jesus that you and I don't know. But here's the question I came to from this. I couldn't think of, and maybe someone can tell me, but I, I doubt it. Anyone in history, you can name one person in history, where their birth story has been as celebrated, studied, um, worshipped, and, and shared if you could just share one person, in fact, I looked at my own birth story, and no, that's not very, that, very exciting. Like, hey, I was born, St. Luke's. No one's going to really share that for, each, for, for history to come. Like, oh, there, this is the room at which you stood in St. Luke's downtown. No, I mean, no one's going to be excited about that. But for some reason, and we know the reason, it is such a big deal that for years and years and years and years, the story of how Jesus, born of a virgin, came into this world has been celebrated, has been worshipped, has been shared over and over and over again. See, this entire section, we know it's all about Jesus. It's all about what God is doing through Jesus. But see, when we come to this story, and when we come to any story, I feel like we can approach it a number of ways. And four of them, I want to just look at the characters of this story. I feel like when it comes to Jesus and his birth or any aspect of Jesus, we can be susceptible to approaching him like Herod, where we're hostile to him where we want him to end. We want to fight Jesus. We want to push him away. And, and I know that some of us are like, well, I wouldn't want to kill Jesus. Okay, let me just say it this way. Herod's reason to kill G Jesus was because Herod liked being a king more than knowing someone else could be a king. So maybe in your life, it's, I don't really see myself as hostile towards Jesus. But, but maybe you are because there's an aspect of your life that you won't let him be king over. Maybe you're hostile to him because it's like, yeah, I love you, Jesus, but oh, you can't have my relationships. Oh, you can't have my money. Oh, you can't have X, fill in the blank. And you, you are hostile towards Jesus in that aspect because you want to be king over it as opposed to him being king. So maybe we approach him that way. Maybe some of us approach it like the scribes and the religious leaders. And this is just comical to me. These guys are experts 
in the law. They are expert. They've been spending time over and over again retranslating or rewriting and rewriting and rewriting the Old Testament writings over and over and over again. They were, they were so good at it. And here these magi, these, these intelligent people from the east show up in a huge onslaught and they say, hey, where, the, where was the king of G- Jews born? We know he was born. Where's, he, where's it going to be? And they come and they say, well, here's, here's all this and this is what it says. And then they sit still. We don't hear anything in the story where they stood up and said, well, maybe we should go look at that. Like, we've been waiting for years. We've been talking about it. It's been passed on from generation to generation that someday a king's going to show up. They don't, get out of their, they don't get off their seat. They say, well, this is how it is. Well, have fun. See you later. And I think it's this indifference that we can approach Jesus with where we know everything about him, but when it comes to actually walking with him, spending time with him, we're indifferent. We are so smart. We could argue. In fact, I could say, turn to the book of math, and before I even finish it, you're like, I'm already there. I beat you. Because we spent so much time around Jesus and all, we have all this knowledge about who he is and who he, what his scriptures say he is, but when it comes to just spending time with him, we are indifferent. You hear a story of Jesus' birth, you're like, yeah, it's a pretty neat story. No one else has been shared. No one else has been celebrated that long. We're indifferent. Now, here's the thing we can, we can know for sure about indifference. is Sooner or later, that indifference will turn to hostility. The Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes, they, they were only indifferent for so long before they were yelling, crucify him. Right? Sooner or later, your indifference will turn to hostility because here's what Jesus does, and this is what I love about him, is that he, he approaches us at, a, at our worst state, and he showers us with grace and says, I love you. And then he takes that moment right there through his spirit, and he starts making us into a new creation, into something incredibly beautiful, and, and, and carries us along. Never, never content with where we are, but content with who he is and what he's doing with us, and he makes us into a new creation. Maybe we just need to hear this, and, and I don't know if this is an approach. I, did, I wanted to throw it in there because a friend of mine, John, shared this, and I thought it was really good. Maybe we need to approach Jesus like Joseph did. You know, Joseph, his first response, the first thing the angel says to him is, Joseph, do not fear. And maybe when it comes to your life, you've spent a lot of time around Jesus or you see a relationship ending or you're afraid with where you're going in work or what school will happen or if you're going to have a child or not have a child and, and there's fear coming in. And you need to hear Jesus tell you, do not fear. Do not fear. But ultimately, I hope all of us at some point would approach Jesus like the Magi did. Although they were incredibly intelligent by world standards, they were fairly ignorant when it came to Jewish history. But you know what they did? They seeked him out and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. They dropped, they, they dropped everything they were doing from the east, made a massive journey across and were looking all over for where he was so that when they found him they could drop on their knees and worship Jesus. They didn't worship Joseph and Mary. They didn't worship his birthplace. They worshipped him. They didn't worship the story. They worshiped him. And so maybe you and I just need to approach Jesus a little bit differently where we're drawn to worship him. He isn't just some deity we are worshiping. The story of Christ shows that he is a relational God worthy of our worship. So when you hear about a Christmas story, anything else about Jesus, I hope that whatever aspect it is, whatever story it is, whatever history it is, whatever it is, I hope it draws you to worship him as rightful king. Worship him like the Magi did. What other misconceptions may you have about Christ and who he is? Would you just lay those down and let Christ breathe life and truth into those 
and would you worship him? The band's going to come up, and we're going to worship a little more and sing a few more songs. But I just wonder, like, sometimes I find myself reading in Genesis, and it's like I get to the Genesis 3 part where Adam and Eve are about to make a massive snake. I'm like, don't do it, don't do it. And you kind of wish, like, have you ever wished, like, man, I wish we had a do-over. Like, I wish we could just go back, and they just wouldn't have done that. Well, that's what Matthew's telling us this is in Jesus Christ. It's a do-over. Creation failed in the recreation through Christ. He's redeeming. He's reconciling. He's making all things new. In him, it's a do-over. We get to start all over again. The old original creation is damaged and flawed and broken, but he's making things beautiful and new. So my question to you is, when it comes to Jesus, are you worshiping him? Do you worship him as rightful king? And do you recognize that he is not done with you? He is making you a new creation every single day to be more and more and more and more like him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Jesus. Thank you for uh, the birth. God, just even the fact that people would sit hours upon hours upon hours in Jerusalem just to, or in Bethlehem just to touch the spot that you might have been born. God, may we not misplace our worship for stuff or things that you did, but who you are. Father, may we all approach you the way that the Magi did in that moment, and even in their ignorance at that time, of just, he is worthy of worship. Not just with my time, not just with my words, but my, my all, everything that I am. God, may we worship your son, Jesus Christ, the way he deserves to be worshiped, as rightful king, as the Messiah. May we not come with indifference. May we not fear at what you're making us, God, but will we, will we just surrender our life to you? God, would the way we worship you be exciting and, and, and crazy to all those around us? God, may, may those that see us following you look at what we are and who, what we're doing and not, not even notice us, but glorify you, our Father who is in heaven. It's in, it's in your precious Son, Jesus Christ, who was born in a house or a stable, laid in a manger, worshiped by shepherds and then magi, died for all atonement of all sins, making all things new. God, it's in his amazing name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.